0: Africa, Zoola, so, uh, Africa, Amika, Nao
1: Nae.
2: Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on double one nine two five kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Ann Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile In our top stories, an Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, U.S. threatens sanctions against International Criminal Court, and Zimbabwe swears in new cabinet ministers. In economics news, Cape to Cairo high-speed fiber network goes live. And in sports news, South African swimmers win seven medals on opening day of Kana Championships. But first up, the news with Ann Musa.
3: A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Several people have been killed in an explosion and fire at a gas-filling station in Nasarawa state in central Nigeria. The government says there's no immediate confirmation of the death toll after the blast at the plant in the state capital Afia. Dozens of people have reportedly suffered burns. Television pictures showed firefighters dowsing vehicles on the road after the blast which is said to have happened as gas cylinders were being refilled. More than 100 migrants, including at least 20 children, have died when two boats sank off the coast of Libya earlier this month. Doctors Without Borders says two inflatable boats left the Libyan coast on the 1st of September, each with 160 people on board. A source says there were only 55 survivors. The migrants were from Sudan, Mali, Niger, Cameroon, Ghana, Libya, Algeria, and Egypt. The reopening of Somalia's upper house has been postponed over security and technical issues. The fourth session of the Senate House was scheduled to resume on Monday at General Kaye Police Academy in the capital, Mogadishu. Meanwhile, the Senate condemned Monday's Al-Shabaab bomb blast in Mogadishu and Al-Shabaab suicide bomber detonated an explosive-laden car. At the gate of the Hodan District headquarters, the blast killed over six people, including soldiers. Al-Shabaab and its affiliate online media claimed responsibility for the attack. The United States has ordered the closure of the Palestine Liberation Organization's office in Washington, saying the organization had refused to assist the U.S. in peace talks with Israel. The U.S. decision comes as President Donald Trump prepares to unveil a long-awaited Middle East peace plan. The Palestine Liberation Organization Secretary General Sahib Arakat has called the move a dangerous escalation.
4: officially that they would
0: close the office and lower the Palestinian flag. And this is an affirmation of the U.S. administration's determination to continue its policies of blackmail and extortion and undermining the peace process and the two-state solution.
3: And finally, over a million people have been ordered to evacuate from areas on the U.S. east coast as Hurricane Florence makes its way there. This is in what may be the strongest storm to hit the region in decades. South Carolina's governor has ordered the evacuation of its entire coastline, while North Carolina and Virginia have declared states of emergency. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue reports.
5: Hurricane Florence has now strengthened into a Category 4 storm, just one level below the maximum. With sustained winds of up to 130 miles per hour, it's heading for the mid-Atlantic coast, where it's expected to make landfall late on Thursday. Officials are urging residents to move inland, and stores have reported mass buying of bottled water, generators and sandbags. In a tweet, Donald Trump said the storm was very dangerous and urged people close to the coast to heed the warnings of state officials. We are with you, said the President.
3: And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time.
0: Africa, rise and shine. <laughs> Africa, tour. Africa, Amika, na unai.
2: U.S. President Donald Trump's administration has threatened to impose sanctions on International Criminal Court personnel if the Hague-based court continues investigations into alleged U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan. The message was delivered in the first major speech by National Security Advisor John Bolton in Washington. Our U.S. correspondent, Sean Bryce Peace, has more from New York.
6: Bolton told the conservative Federalist Society gathered at a Washington hotel that the United States would use any means necessary to protect its citizens and those of its allies from unjust prosecution by an illegitimate court. President Trump's top national security official said the ICC posed a threat to U.S. sovereignty, is ineffective in prosecuting war crimes, and too often targets American allies like Israel. Bolton said they would not cooperate with the ICC nor provide assistance to the court, that they would let the court die on its own, quote, after all, for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us, close quotes. While the U.S. played a central role in the establishment of the Rome Statute that created the court, it is not a states party. In 2017, the ICC prosecutor requested to open an investigation into war crimes by foreign government forces after May 2003 in Afghanistan. That decision is still pending. Afghanistan is a state's party granting the court jurisdiction over crimes committed in its territory. Sherwin Bryceby's SABC News, New York. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu.
4: We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people and we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country.
0: Mama Sisulu centenary.
7: Channel Africa leading the Women's Month Conversations.
2: The midterm election in the United States in November is, is shaped up to be a battle not just between Democrats and Republicans, but also between the current president and his immediate predecessor. Former President Barack Obama has made a bold play on the national stage since the beginning of September, delivering three key speeches that have made him a key figure in Democratic hopes to regain some power in Congress. And while his successor, President Donald Trump, is not on the ballot, his agenda will be, with these two figures, highly popular in their respective parties, likely to play crucial roles roles in November's outcome. Sean Bryce-Peace reports.
6: While President Trump has used his Twitter handle to consistently attack his predecessor, Obama has largely remained silent. That all changed when he spoke at the funeral of late Republican senator and former presidential rival John McCain on September 1st.
8: So much of our politics, our public life, our public discourse can seem small and mean and petty, trafficking and bombast and insult and phony controversies. And manufactured outrage it's a politics that pretends to be brave and tough but in fact is born of fear
6: that was just the beginning he'd give two further speeches the very next week in which he attacked President Trump and the Republican Party for fueling division and resentment in the country
8: I was also intent on following uh, a wise American tradition of ex-presidents gracefully exiting the political stage and making room for new voices and new ideas. I'm here today because this is one of those pivotal moments when every one of us, as citizens of the United States, need to determine just who it is that we are.
6: Both parties have urged their supporters to get to the polls on November 6th when Democrats need to pick up at least 23 seats in the House of Representatives and two in the Senate to regain control of at least one lever of government. This was President Trump's response to Obama's very public return to politics. He said, what do you think of President Obama's speech? And I said, I'm sorry, I watched it, but I fell asleep. I found he's very good, very good for sleeping. <laughs> I think he was trying to take some credit. He was trying to take credit for this incredible thing that's happening to our country. If the Democrats got in, I have to say this to President Obama, and it wasn't him, but would have been the same thing. If the Democrats got in with their agenda in November of almost two years ago, Instead of having 4.2 up, I believe, honestly, you'd have 4.2 down. You'd be negative. You'd be in negative numbers right now. You'd be in negative numbers. Referring there to the country's current economic growth after President Obama argued, it was a recovery that started under his watch.
8: By the time I left office, household income was near its all-time high and the uninsured rate had hit an all-time low, and wages were rising, and poverty rates were falling. Uh, I mention all this just so when you hear how great the economy is doing right now, let's just remember uh, when this recovery started. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it's continued.
6: So, while these two political figures are not facing each other on the ballot in November, it's an idea that supporters of both candidates wouldn't mind channeling nonetheless. Obama will have a personal stake in this, having been vexed by Trump for years, from lies about his birth certificate and his right to the presidency, to attempts, often successful by the Trump administration, to undo a number of his signature achievements. But President Trump likes a good political brawl, and currently enjoys unrivaled popularity from within his Republican Party, making the prospects for November all the more mouthwatering, if not pivotal, for the future vision of these United States. I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York.
2: Let's go back in time to today in 2001, terrorists crashed two hijacked airplanes into the World Trade Center in New York City, bringing down the twin 110-story towers, killing more than 2,700 people. Another hijacked jetliner slams into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., killing at least 189 people. A fourth hijacked plane crashes in rural southern Pennsylvania, killing 44 people aboard. Today in History... 2001. A controversial Kenyan special police unit is dividing opinion across the country. They've been accused of extrajudicial killings. Businesses and residents say their streets are safer. Victims' families and human rights groups say it's a dangerous precedent. The BBC's Jamal Osman reports from Nairobi, Kenya's capital.
5: In March 2017, this film went viral. On the ground in a pool of blood is a suspected gangster already shot dead by a plain-clothed policeman. Handed another gun, he fires five more shots, appears to reload, then casually finishes him off. The shooter, Corporal Ahmed Rashid, is still serving as head of a special police unit. Its mandate is to rid the streets of gangsters and criminals. We must be having some goals to achieve. Ours is to get all the gangsters who are within, any crime not to happen within our area. Whether alive or dead. That one doesn't have any compromise about it. Many locals love
9: him. This
5: man is hunting and killing them criminals and not taking bribes.
10: We pray for them in the mosque. May God reward them. They brought security. We support them 100%. Isn't it better to kill a thief before he kills you? Some
5: condemn him. We can't take the bullet and the gun up. George Morara. It's the spokesman for the Kenyan Human Rights Commission. You're
11: innocent until proven guilty. We've suspended that system and we are now using shortcuts. And for me, this is a very sad state of affairs because it speaks to a complete breakdown of law and order.
5: This is Mabare, home to around a quarter of a million people, one of the biggest slums in Nairobi. This is where police say the gang's hideout. Uh,
1: we are now the season, uh, with the...
5: Rashid responds to a call from a man who has been robbed. They have taken some items within Olivia just some 30 minutes ago. Now I need all your team to move into action within Olympic area. They are only armed with only one firearm and the rest
0: are carrying knives.
5: Ahmed Rashid's team head into the slum. It's a place where most uniformed officers are scared to enter. They find one of the guys they are looking for.
1: The suspected
5: gangster says he's not a thief. He pleads with the officer before being slumped into the boot of the car. Police told us he was later charged with robbery, but some suspects picked up by this unit face an immediate form of punishment.
1: Stop killing. You want to raise our voice to say no more killings?
5: Stop killing us. At a public protest against police extrajudicial killings, banners declaring life is priceless are thrust into the air. This is where we meet Lucy Wambuye and Suzanne Mathoni, who say their husbands were both killed by Ahmed Rashid. We joined them at a local radio station where they have been invited to discuss the issue. Lucy breaks down as she describes what happened to her husband.
4: My husband was called Mage. There were two police officers who came. They told him, let's go, and we still don't know what's wrong he's supposed to have done. After the burial, I gave birth to my baby, who is now one year and three months. But life is not easy.
5: Police told us there are justifiable circumstances for when an officer is allowed to shoot. Charles Owino It's the spokesperson for the Kenyan National Police.
9: It it would be unjustified to say there's no trust in the system. This same system has prosecuted police officers
6: and jailed them.
5: Back on the streets, Ahmed Rashid continues his mission to target criminals. Many residents here support him because they believe he's making their lives safer. But critics say allowing police to act as judge, jury... An executioner is setting a dangerous precedent.
2: That report by the BBC's Jamal Osman in Nairobi. The International Association of Prosecutors should equip countries to pursue international crimes. This is according to South Africa's Justice Minister Mike Masuta. The crimes include illicit financial flows, human trafficking, terror funding and trading in protected species. Masuta addressed senior prosecutors, heads of prosecuting agencies and ministers of justice from around the world who are meeting in Johannesburg. Nthakwanang reports.
4: More than 400 prosecutors from around the world and the International Criminal Court are in South Africa. They are exchanging experiences on the need for prosecutorial independence and their challenges. Justice Minister Michael
11: Masuta. In a world where we embrace the advancement of technology and the ever-evolving methods of information sharing across the globe in an instant, it is important to appreciate the need for formal and informal cooperation between prosecuting authorities to support each other in the fight against criminality in our individual jurisdictions.
4: For South Africa, the NPA is only 20 years old but its leadership has already been decided by the Constitutional Court. Recent media reports indicate that the NPA has a backlog of nearly 700 cases and it is grappling with state capture.
11: It is estimated that Africa loses more than $50 billion uh, annually to these criminal activities which rob our countries of the resources that would uh, would help our development efforts and the creation of a world uh, anchored on social justice. This is criminal gain uh, for the detriment of the continent and her mostly poor people, and this relates to crimes uh, relating to money laundering, um, the uh, uh, trading, illicit trading in uh, uh, exotic uh, uh, biological species and other biological products and other similar uh, transnational uh, and organized uh, forms of crime.
4: Masuta appealed to the IAP to equip African prosecutors with skills to handle these often complex and intricate cases.
11: I'd like to suggest that the IAP considers placing this issue on its agenda. This may include practical mechanisms to prosecute the beneficiaries and the repatriation of much-needed resources to African Countries
4: other crimes debilitating the continent include terror funding, human trafficking, and other violent crimes against women and children. The conference ends on Friday. I'm Gatani in Johannesburg. Zimbabwe's president Emerson Nagagwa has
2: sworn in new members of his cabinet. The ministers took their oath of office at a ceremony at State House on Monday. There are a lot of hopes riding on this new cabinet. Which is seen as leaner and more competent than previous ones. Various ministers have promised to work hard to turn around the economy. Simon Muchema reports from Harare.
11: I, Emerson Dambuzom Nangagwa, President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, do hereby call upon you all, ministers to take the oaths as prescribed by law.
9: That was Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa during the swearing-in of a new cabinet on Monday in the capital. A lot is expected from the men and women who stuck their heads very high, committing to turn the tides of Zimbabweans. Mnangagwa's cabinet is a mixture of old and new faces, but what is more intriguing is the fact that Mnangagwa decided to invite non-technocrats Opa Muchinguri is now the Minister of Defense, the first woman in Zimbabwe to hold such a sensitive portfolio and explained how she plans to yield results.
4: Well, I feel good. Uh, it's an honor, not just myself, but uh, the women of Zimbabwe. I think this is in recognition of the work that we have been doing. As women, since before independence and also now after independence in all spheres of life. So, this is really something that uh, we appreciate uh, as the women of Zimbabwe, but more uh, as a party of ZANU PF, that this was long overdue.
9: On one hand, the new health minister, Obadiah Moyo admitted he's coming in when the country is facing serious health challenges such as cholera.
11: There's a whole array of issues which we want to look at and bring about change. It's all about change. So at this stage I can't say much, but uh, I can assure you that uh, we're looking at bringing in a lot of change. You know, we want to see the system being modernized you know, and uh, being affordable and accessible. You know, we want the service to be available to everyone.
9: Former Vice President of the Africa Development Bank, Professor Mtuling Mwe, now Finance Minister, is expected to help stabilize the
7: economy. The cash the, 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 the crisis issues are also a symptom of the of the general uh, poor macroeconomic picture on the fiscal front. On the monetary fund, in terms of external confidence as well, all that is causing or impacting the crisis issue. So, really, one has to look at the holistic picture in order to, to deal with it. But clearly, there
12: be steps on the monetary policy that are underway.
9: While the entire country requires a new approach and revived political will, ministries of finance, industry, defence, home affairs, mines, agriculture needs more efforts to get the ball rolling. Time is ticking for the ruling ZANU-PF, but as the cabinet took oath on Monday, shock entries such as multiple Olympic gold medalist, Kesti Coventry, could not hide her excitement. A lot is expected, and as it stands today, the exchange rate between the U.S. dollar and the surrogate currency known as the bond note has soured to 80%. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is a sermon much
2: Sudan's President Omar al-Bashir has dissolved his government and named a new prime minister a move aimed at fixing a crisis-hit economy battered in recent months by shortages of bread, fuel and hard currency. Bashir's decision to fire the entire cabinet comes as Sudan faces a growing economic crisis with inflation surging to more than 65%. The cost of food items and other products has more than doubled over the past year, while the foreign currency market, has seen the Sudanese pound plunge against the dollar. Our East Africa correspondent James Shimangula has more.
1: I think um, the rationale is uh, to ensure that uh, the government uh, performs perfectly. Actually, the changes expected to be uh, the first uh, move in uh, what uh, political insiders in his uh, government characterize as a series of radical measures that will uh, overhaul the uh, central and state governments in uh, An attempt to uh, weather an intensifying economic crisis. You know, the the country has been in the grip of economic crisis, especially caused by the stoppage of um, buying oil or rather getting oil from its neighbor in the south. So the country's economy has been highly affected. Hence, the need to trim down or rather to reorganize the secular authority in Khartoum, or the government, if you don't mind, by reducing ministers, cabinet ministers from 31 to 21. And then uh, the other move is, uh, I mean, the move itself and the reshuffle itself has paved the way for the uh, replacement of the Prime Minister Bakri, Hassan Saleh, who has been there.
7: But one would assume that only the economic cluster ministers would be the ones who are getting the chop here because they are in charge of the economic growth strategy. But all levels of government have been affected by this reshuffle. As the commander-in-chief, al-Bashir, is he not supposed uh, to also take responsibility as well and uh, perhaps resign?
1: I can assure you that uh, resigning is not in the vocabulary, if I can use that word of uh, President El-Bashir. You know, the man has been um, in power for many, many years, and uh, you know, as well as I do, that uh, last month, that is in August, the National Congress Party that rules the country nominated uh, El Bashir, Omar Hassan Ahmed El Bashir, for a new term in uh, 2020 elections. You know, the elections are coming in 2020. That is the year after next year. This was um, actually, despite uh, him uh, controlling the country, ruling the country, and uh, observing the constitution that limits his term to five years. He's supposed to rule for five years, but you know, they elected him or nominated him uh, to vie for the presidency in 2020. But that's a forgotten matter because when 2020 comes, God willing, in Khartoum, Sudan and in South Africa and in here, I mean the three of us watching or three countries watching, El-Bashir is still just a strong man there.
7: The crisis has deepened despite the United States lifting its decades-old trade embargo imposed on the country. Has the lifting of sanctions helped in any way in terms of stabilizing the country's economy?
1: Not at all. Not at all because, I repeat, not at all because actually the country's economy does not actually come from the trade that the country does with other countries around the world. The economy of the country is strengthened by business between Khartoum and Juba in South Sudan. The pumping of oil from South Sudan to Khartoum, Khartoum which sells to other clans, and that strengthens the economy. You know, we are not talking about Khartoum selling its goods to other countries from where they are. Rather, we have to be talking about how do you uh, generate the the good economy of the country from selling your goods outside the country, foreign countries, faraway countries, when you can still generate that good economy by pushing trade between your country and your neighbor. In other words, had El-Bashir, for example, been trading with the, uh, South Sudan over the past five years that were, have been marked by fighting? stopping the pumping of oil or selling of oil, had the business people, small traders, big traders around the border been allowed to cross into the other country there would have been a lot of business.
7: Now, you mentioned that uh, Mustanza Musa Abdallah, who was the irrigation minister in the outgoing cabinet, has been appointed the new prime minister and that ministries in the new government will be slashed to 21 from 31, a move intended to cut down on spending. Do we know when the new cabinet is going to be announced?
1: In fact, as we speak now, I'm told... uh, A new cabinet should be coming in full. That means the full list should be released. But for the time being, what we know is that Bashir, I gather from Khartoum, as I speak to you, has already removed his um, vice president, Hassabo Mohammed Abdel Rahman, and replaced him with uh, a man from North Darfur. He's actually an ex-governor, and he's known as Osman Yusuf Kibir. And uh, other than that, he's expected to lay off some of his um, aides, very close aides.
2: That's James Shimangula, our East Africa correspondent on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, speaking to Kumbela Munjalele. <music> our headlines up next with Than Musa.
3: A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussan. The headlines, scores of people have reportedly been killed and hundreds injured when a gas tank exploded in the northern Nigerian state of Nasarawa. Conflicting death reports have emerged ranging from between 7 and 35 people killed. More than 100 migrants, including at least 20 children, have died when two boats sank off the coast of Libya earlier this month. And the U.S. State of South Carolina's Emergency Management Agency says it's preparing for the possibility of a large-scale disaster as Hurricane Florence battles towards the east coast. Those are the stories making headlines.
0: Channel
4: Africa.
13: Sylvanus
9: Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa Rise and Shine.
4: I am Hilda Keke Loa in Zambia.
9: This is Simon Muchema in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noël Bamwisi,
4: Channel Africa, Kinshasa.
0: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka. In Yawundi, Informing the world about Africa.
4: In In Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa.
0: Channel Africa, Blantaya. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown.
9: Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa.
0: Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaounde. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa.
4: in In Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwai Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel
0: Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
2: It's 8.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. A new report by the United Nations Children's Fund UNICEF says half of students aged 13 to 15 worldwide report having experienced peer-to-peer violence in and around school. The An Everyday Lesson Hashtag End Violence in Schools report states that a number of children were bullied or involved in a physical fight in the last year. This violence impacts student learning and well-being in rich and poor countries alike. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by UNICEF's Meki Heibrecht. Good morning, Meki, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine.
13: Good morning. It's my pleasure and honor to be on the show.
2: Now, Maggie, briefly highlight for us the number of ways students face violence in and around the classroom.
13: Yes, so basically the global data show that uh, more than one in three students between 13 and 15 experience bullying and are involved in physical fights. Um, And while this affects both girls and boys equally, girls are more likely to become victims of psychological forms of bullying, and boys are more at risk of physical violence and threats. The report also shows that violence involves weapons in schools, such as knives and guns, continues to claim lives. But in this increasingly digital world, bullies are disseminate violent, hurtful, and humiliating content with the tip of the key through either WhatsApp or any other forms of social media or internet.
2: Now, do you think most schools have practical policies to protect students from violence and regularly strengthen their response measures?
13: So in South Africa, the government has established the School Safety Framework, which is a diagnostic tool for schools that helps them provide standard guidelines to develop and monitor school safety plans and promote positive discipline. Um, There is also an app that has been introduced for learners to report violence and forms of bullying and harassment, which is now becoming introduced in Gauteng uh, schools more and more. However, of course, it is very important to empower children themselves with life skills um, and, and resilience to understand their bodies, protective behaviours, their rights, and risks, so that they, in a timely manner, can identify the risks that they are opposed to and report violence, harassment, or bullying in a timely manner.
2: Now, talk to us about the long-term impact of such violence on the victim, as well as the perpetrator and how it should be dealt with, and also... The, from the parents' perspective? Because obviously, um, as parents, uh, they would also want to get involved and, and, and deal with the problem.
13: Yeah, so basically, the long-term impact of violence on children can lead to uh, lasting physical, mental, emotional harm and jeopardize their ability to become social, responsible and productive members of society. So this, this, this is a major loss to not only the economy, but to the well-being of children and their future development and growth. Um, it is very important to empower caregivers and parents in terms of dialoguing with children as Especially in the age group of teenagers, to keep them close and open the dialogue, and to uh, and to listen to them and their concerns, so they can also depict um, elements of risk and distress in a very early stage. So we are supporting government with parenting programs to empower caregivers in this dialogue and parenting skills, and also we are supporting child and youth care in families where there are no biological caregivers. And then we are supporting men care programs in order to involve men in the education of the children and in in parenting skills. So it is very important that teachers, parents, children themselves are aware of their rights, of protective behaviors, of social justice and dialogue in order to clamp down on these levels of violence and create a more gender equal society.
2: Now, yesterday marked World Suicide Prevention Day. Is there any relation between such violence and sometimes possible suicide?
13: Yes, the moment that a child is uh, a victim of bullying, harassment or any sexual harassment, um, they often withdraw themselves. And if then not timely support is being provided to this child to seek either medical help, psychosocial support, or even legal redress that can lead to um, panic and at times indeed suicide um, if if these children completely feel that they, they become isolated and don't know where to seek help. So it's very, very important to continue to create a safe environment in schools where children that are showing sickness of distress are picked up in a timely manner and are referred to the parent-teacher association to the board of the school and get help from social workers. And in case of sexual violence and harassment, that there is even involvement of, of the judiciary.
2: Maki, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now.
13: Okay, you're so very, very welcome.
2: Thank you. That's UNICEF's Maki Haigbrich joining us on the line. Going back in time to today in 2003, Swedish Foreign Minister Anna Lynn dies in a hospital after being stabbed repeatedly the previous day by an unidentified male attacker while shopping at a department store in Stockholm. Today in History, 2003. South Africa's President Sul Ramaphosa has called for technological innovation to be made available to developing countries. This comes as thousands of delegates at the ITU Telecoms World Conference and Exhibition in Durban will be discussing the benefits and challenges associated with the next generation of ITC innovation 5G. Experts say it will revolutionize the world. But developing countries will be facing challenges to make it available to their citizens. Dries Libenberg reports from Durban.
10: President Cyril Ramaphosa has warned that the fourth industrial revolution, as rapid technological innovation is known, would have failed if it remains in the hands of a select few, instead of being available to everyone. He was the keynote speaker at the ITU Telecom World Conference and Exhibition in Durban. Thousands of delegates from over 90 governments, state telecommunication regulators and network operators are attending the conference. The conference is taking place as the world is poised to start rolling out 5G technology. Ramaposa says he supports universal access to the internet.
11: Important to Africa and developing countries is the need for countries to share manufacturing, and localization opportunities to allow equal access and shared growth throughout the world. We say this so that some of these capabilities must not be the sole fifthom of certain countries only.
10: Meanwhile, International Telecommunication Union Secretary-General Ho Lin Zhao says the conference is Africa's opportunity to make itself heard to ensure that the continent also sees the benefits of the technological revolution. Zhao says ITU members are meeting later this year to put together its strategy for the next four years. The well, next four days we are going to have the opportunity to put infrastructure,
12: investment, innovation and inclusive Inclusivity in the spotlight. These four eyes are all critical to bridging the digital divide and achieving the sustainable development goals.
10: South Africa's Minister of Telecommunications and Postal Services, Sia Bonga Kwele, says government is currently making plans for the licensing of the 5G spectrum once it's allocated. Kwele says they can no longer have delays in rolling out infrastructure and want to start working with the private sector. He says the technology will greatly enhance the effectiveness and quality of the country's cell phone network.
12: That's a spectrum which is used in the Internet of Things. There's a spectrum which is critical for the digital economy. And uh, those are the things we're putting in place. That's why we're very happy that our South African companies, MTN, telecoms, And other international companies, they are really putting foundation for this digital economy. We're rolling out infrastructure, which is basics. Uh, We're working with companies from abroad and here to deal with application. We're also finalizing our approach to data management.
10: Europe is poised to roll out 5G next year. Experts say it has the capacity to enhance nanotechnology and artificial intelligence while making the driverless car a lot more feasible. However, 2 billion of the 5 billion people in Africa who have cell phones do not have access to the internet. A lack of infrastructure and the high cost of data is hampering technological advancement. Will the new technological revolution leave Africa further behind? Donna Bathia Murphy from the American Satellite Organization in Marsat says African governments should not look at the technology alone, but also at the goals they want to achieve.
12: When we look at what 5G
5: is, it's not one technology, uh, it's not one frequency band, and it's not one business model. It's, you know, how do I get my bananas out, and, and how do I get e-health to certain areas, or, you know, I think for each country, they will look at what they're apps are, the requirements are and how do we create innovations.
10: Low frequency services may be better suited to serve deep rural areas. I'm Dries Liebenberg in Durban.
2: Our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoko.
14: Good morning. You tuned into Channel Africa. The Cape to Cairo high-speed fibre network has officially gone live at the 2018 ITU Telcom World Conference, underway in South Africa's coastal city of Durban. Liquid Telcom, the company that started the Cape to Cairo Fibre Connection, says it's a dream of a One Africa broadband has finally come true. Amina Akron reports from the conference.
4: In 2015, Zimbabwean-based Liquid Telcom signed a Memorandum of Understanding with Egypt to enable them to deliver the Cape to Cairo network. The network connects about 13 countries and almost 700 cities and towns on its journey. Rashad Shah, its CEO, says going live at the ITU conference, has allowed them to culminate a vision they had over the last 10 years, that of connecting the whole of Africa.
14: Meanwhile, South Africa's Minister of Telecommunications and Postal Services Siabonga Toele says the government is planning for the licensing of five G spectrum once it's allocated. Toele says that they can no longer have delays in rolling out infrastructure and want to start working with the private sector so that they can take the opportunity. Wireless five G is the latest iteration of a cellular technology that has the potential to increase speed of wireless networks the technology will greatly enhance the effectiveness and quality of south africa's network well was speaking at the itu telecom world conference underway in durban
12: that's a spectrum which is used in the internet of things there's a spectrum which is critical for the digital economy And uh, those are the things we're putting in place. That's why we're very happy that our South African companies, MTN, Telcoms, and other international companies, they are really putting foundation for this digital economy. We're rolling out infrastructure, which is basics. Uh, We're working with companies from abroad and here to deal with applications. We're also finalizing our approach to data management.
14: Zimbabwe's new Finance Minister, Mtuli Ngube says he will accelerate plans to pay areas to the World Bank and the African Development Bank and would work on a three year program to cut government spending. Ngube did not spell out how he would speed up the clearance of one point eight billion US dollars in areas, but said it would be a vital step in rebuilding investor confidence. Economists have said the repayments would be a vital step towards Zimbabwe qualifying for an international monetary fund program. The production of First Oil from total 16 billion US dollar Eniga, or rather a Gina project, is being threatened as management of Nigeria's Lagos deep offshore logistics, LADOL, banished Samsung Heavy Industries SHI from its dockyard. Investigations by Vanguard Weekend showed that first oil scheduled for December 2018 would be likely affected. Especially many equipment, including hookup and commissioning materials, have been trapped at Ladoll. A senior official of SHI, who preferred not to be named because he was not authorized to speak, disclosed in an interview with Vanguard News that that some subcontractors who were engaged for the commissioning had not been able to work. And finally, Chinese multinational Alibaba Group's billionaire co-founder Jack Ma will announce a succession plan to hand the reins of a sprawling empire to a new generation of leaders but will remain executive chairperson for the time being. Jack will announce the plan on his 54th birthday and the handover strategy will stretch over a significant period of time. Jack, who co-founded Alibaba in 1999, stepped down as chief executive in 2013. He currently serves as the company's international face at top political and business events. Jack Ma. Indicators at the sawas the US dollar trades at 10.75, Botswana Pula, it's at 10.26, Zambian guaja. In BRICS currencies, it's trading at 4.7 Brazilian real, 70.16 Russian ruble, 7.240 Indian rupee, 6.86 Chinese yuan and 15.20 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 86 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,193. Platinum, $784 dollars pounds. As the price of brand crude oil is at $77.50 a barrel. Channel Africa.
2: Our sports update up next with Figi Lele
0: First up in our sports update this hour, begin with swimming news. The South African swimming team opened the 13th Cana Swimming and Open Water Championships in a spectacular fashion, winning seven medals, three gold, three silver, and one bronze. The senior Africa champs are ongoing in Algiers, Algeria, having started on the 10th and will run until the 16th of September. Erin Gallagher blew away the opposition in the 100-meter freestyle. And 50 meter breaststroke secured south africa's first gold in the 100 meter freestyle with a time of 54.79 seconds over two seconds ahead of egypt's farida osman in 56.80 and algeria's majahid nazrin in 58 0.09 0.09 seconds and later in the finals went on to break chanel van veeg's championship record in the 50 meter breaststroke van veeg's time stood at 29.31 seconds with uh, gallagher winning the gold in a new championship record time of 29.04 ahead of egypt samiha mohsen in 29.51 seconds and algeria's melin amel in 29.67 seconds and in hockey news, with less than 80 days to go to the 2018 FIH Men's Hockey World Cup in India. The excitement around the South African men's team is building up fast. Coach Mark Hopkins has roped in a further 12 under-21 players that will join the South African men's national hockey team. Hopkins talks more about his plans.
6: Well, just early 80 days now away from the World Cup. We have selected a, a World Cup training squad of 29 players, of which are those 29 29- We'll be taking 18 to Bubaneshwar. And what we do every year is we we ratify a new squad for the next 12 months. Uh, and that ratified squad is of 41 players, which is the 29 that we will be selecting for the World Cup. And then we've looked to really start thinking about the next couple of Olympic cycles. So we brought in some um, under-21 players um, and a, a few more players that we feel have uh, the potential to represent South Africa, in the next few years and we want to bring them into
0: that environment and the culture now and local football news south African mtnk8 cup final between supersports united and cape town city is heading to moses mabida stadium in deben once again this will be happening on the 29th of september at 7 pm central african time united head coach kaitano Tembo is happy with the choice of the venue Good venue.
11: We always, you know, get a lot of, you know, love and support, you know, in Devon. I think we, it's, it's a good venue for us, and uh, we, we, we happy to go there. I hope, you know, we, 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 we repeat, you know, last season, and uh, it's very, you know, refreshing as well to go to Devon. And I think we, we the, 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 the boys and the team will love to go to Devon. When you're at this stage, you, you have to play anyway. You know, if you really want to, you know, go and, you know, lift the trophy, you should be comfortable to play anyone and play anywhere, which is very important. I think uh, we've got the the mentality and the attitude, especially with the players which we have, and the experience, you know, to go to Deben and get a result. Meanwhile, Cape Town
0: City coach Benny McCarthy, who has a new team also, He's happy about the venue, but also he believes. He's got a stronger squad now compared to the team that he took to the final last year.
7: Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I've got a new goalkeeper, Peter Lievenberg. You know, um, don't have Walters no more. So, so that's a massive positive for me. Um, I got a goalkeeper that can win me games, you know. I've got a Tokeloranti, I've got a Shagazulu that I didn't add last season, you know, um, Matthew Rusiki I have. So I've got much better players, much, much better players than what I had. So I've got a better Arsenal now. Now I can go to war and I can actually see that with, with the, the players I have to go to war with, I can actually win it.
0: That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, na
2: Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the SAWA, US threatened sanctions against International Criminal Court and Zimbabwe swears in new cabinet ministers. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzurama Magaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa is Mondling Ngobo with a song titled Enganesi.
1: A million
11: are very neat. Our very needy.